0: And when we relinquish, we believe we have no rights. We relinquish our rights. But what we're not told is that we still have an emotional responsibility to our kids. And we believe that once we relinquish our parental rights, that our job is done. No one tells us that years later, our kids are going to need us emotionally. And if we're not ready for that, we will cause more damage than the original placement itself if we're not prepared for that interaction.
1: Welcome to About Your Mother, Where Your Story Begins. I'm host, Jennifer Griffith. Today, I bring you a big, brave story. November is National Adoption Month. Life can lead all of us to make difficult choices in life. Some, we will carry with us for a lifetime. In this episode of AYM, we speak with Ashley Mitchell, founder of Lifetime Healing Foundation, supporting birth mothers and those touched by such trauma. Her mission is unique, but it is needed. Give a listen and you will understand why.
2: Ashley, welcome to About Your Mother, where your story begins. It's an honor to have you. Oh my gosh, Jennifer, I've been looking forward to this so much. I'm so excited. Me too. And I am going to do a little shout out to our friend Jeff Forney for connecting us.
0: Yes, I love Jeff. He was like, you guys need to meet and he was not
2: Rob. No, he wasn't Rob at all. So since I like to start the podcast with a reflection on your mother, tell us, what did you learn from your mom? So from
0: my mother, she is an intellectual.
2: Uh, she grew up in a home
0: of educators and for fun, they played Scrabble on Sundays and watched Jeopardy. In fact, I was named after a contestant on Jeopardy, um, a Swedish contestant, you know, 42 years ago, which is so funny. Um But she always taught me, she knows more about sports than anyone in this nation. She could have been in the ESPN sports analysis. Like, she's absolutely brilliant. And she always taught me, know a little bit about a lot of different things and you can sit at any table. And that just spurred so much of my fascination with documentaries and reading books. And and it has served me really well to be able to sit in any kind of demographic with any kind of person to sit in have a little bit to share about any topic that comes up. And I have really appreciated that,
2: that knowledge. Yeah, that's awesome. And I know you're a football fan too. That's out yeah, of <laughs> the NFL. Yes,
0: I, I grew up in a
2: home that loves sports.
0: My dad, my brothers all competed on a collegiate level. And I think college football is the greatest sport on the planet.
2: <laughs> it's pretty fun to watch. It sure is. Yeah. Well, and I think that is, you know, Knowing a little bit about all things has really led you into this journey that you're a warrior of sorts, and you are breaking down barriers and um, helping women. So let's get into your story a little bit. So your journey into being a birth mom. Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs>
0: yes. So I found myself pregnant. Uh, I'm from Utah, born and raised, Um, live here now still with my husband and our kids, but I found myself pregnant when I was 25. And, um, and because of a failed abortion plan, found myself looking into adoption as an, uh, an option for this pregnancy. And, um, I gave birth when I was 26 and I placed my son for adoption, um, Derek, and he is 15 and he's an amazing kid. Uh, My husband and I have been married 12 years. We have an 11-year-old and a 9-year-old. And so we have this crazy open adaption relationship. My son comes and sleeps over, and we have this amazing relationship with siblings. And it's powerful and constantly changing, but it didn't start out that way. We started with um, little to no contact, very close in those first five years. Through so much grief and trauma and self-destructive behavior post-relinquishment that I was not prepared for and it was not educated about and was not something that I was encouraged to discover and understand and educate myself around. And so processing through all of that and coming out on the other side to build this support system for birth mothers nationally has been it was really at the core of me not having any kind of support and that no woman should go through something like this some life check that changes you to the core of who you are and then expect the women to just be up to their own devices to to fill in the gaps and to heal was just not, it just didn't sit well with us. And so we wanted to change that national standard for sure.
2: Yeah. And we connected on this immediately because my mom is a birth mom and relinquished her birthborn. So tell us a little bit, it just seems so criminal that there isn't a support system for birth mothers until you of course
0: (laughs) come. It's been really interesting. You know, when we go back to knowing a little bit about a lot of different, things you know when when I started to really unpack my own experience as a birth mother I immediately was drawn to learning the history of adoption and birth parents and and this is where like the era with the baby scoop era where your mom would have placed yeah her, her son right a brother
2: yep my brother yep baby scoop indeed
0: Firstborn, born same as me placed a son And understanding the history back then and the propaganda that was these children were unloved and unwanted. And so adoptive parents were like, of course, we'll take these children. And we kept the women in secret and shame um, to just pretend this never happened. And you gave this family, you know, this baby, and we're going to move on and pretend this didn't happen to when I placed in 2006. Where I love my baby so much, I wanted to give them to this family. And so then the adoptive parents are like, Of course, we'll take these children because they're so loved. And so when I look at your mom that's a birth mother and me as a birth mother that's also a, a mother that parents her children, I, I don't know that we've come that far. It's just the propaganda, the packaging has shifted a little bit. We've, we've marketed adoption a little bit better from being unloved and unwanted to we love you so much that we're going to give you this gift. And it's been really interesting to watch in both scenarios how much people have just expected the birth parents to slip into the background. And it's like we forget adoption has been all about family building. And it's been that way for decades to to package and present adoption as this beautiful family building tool. But we are missing the piece where we separate and break a family before we build a family. And that's where we've come in as birth parents to say, but what about us? What about our time in the hospital? What about giving birth? What about this separation from our children that's being missed here? And how, how are we not getting that this matters? Um, because it wasn't just about giving this gift to this family. It was about us placing our children in the arms of somebody else or having our child taken and put in the arms of somebody else. And still, even in 2021, we're still looking at families going, how are you missing the whole reason why this child is here? And it's been interesting to watch people's reactions to us stepping forward as birth parents and saying, remember us, we're the reason why you have this family, (laughs) like we need, we need a space too.
2: Yeah. And what has that reaction been like? (laughs) Um, It doesn't seem like an easy task. (laughs) Yeah, I think it depends on who you ask to. Um,
0: I think more and more, you know, social media has changed. I mean, it's changed the nation. And so it's changed globally in so many ways. But I think... uh, the right to privacy is not really a thing anymore. And so I think there's been access and with DNA testing and things like that, I've really changed the game in adaption. Um, but I think as far as, I think the birth parents, there's always been this stigma. Uh, we've been villainized in the adoptee space because we separate, we chose to give them away, right? And so that's that already attaches so much of the intimate struggle um, in the adoptive voice, and so we're kind of validized in that space. We come in as a threat to the adoptive parent space where they don't want to compete with for for parent rights with with this other parent, right? and so it's been complicated to to find a voice to be a credible voice that matters. and when you look at stereotypes and you break down foster care and things like that. Biologically, we don't have a great track record of being people that we want in our in our circle, and so it's been a fight to break down the walls to say if we are healthy and you will sit with us in support, then we can be healthier and enhance your adoption relationship instead of help it deteriorate. You know, but that needs to happen at the beginning, not when we're adults in reunion
2: trying to figure out this crazy. Abandonment for all these years. Yes, because that was not an easy thing. So you relinquished, and then how was that experience for you? What happened to you post this? Because I I really want to understand, because I know it's hard, what that was like for you. So the hospital and it's um and I
0: and I always get emotional or cry when I tell the story because it's it's like I'm back there even 15 years later. I but I think that's motherhood. I think that's the connection with our children. And yeah. um, if you've had the, the the great honor of giving birth, y- you kind of can feel that and understand that. But I became a mother for the first time. And then within 48 hours, I relinquished my rights and became a birth mother. And so the rub in that is that I came home from the hospital and my milk was coming in and and I was healing from delivery and I was wearing the, mush, the mesh underwear and the pads and, and my hormones were crazy and everything about me my physical being said that I was the mother and but I was childless and so you have this ambiguous battle this unresolved space this limbo that is very complicated because I can't go back to the life before my pregnancy because it changes you. I'm not the same person, but I don't fit into the mother role that I feel like I walked into because I don't have a kid. And so it's how what now? How do you pick up the pieces and move forward when everything about you from head to toe to the core of your soul says you're a mother? And you know, that that limbo of what now I think unresolved drives birth parents to all the self-destructive behaviors and patterns and things that people that people fear and judge us by, without understanding the trauma that takes place. Um, and it's sad, and it's lonely, and it's scary, and until you have people that will sit knee to knee with you and really process and unpack what's happened to you and give you a name to it and give you the right tools to process and and help you move through it. I I think you just spend your time numbing out and coping in any way that you know how. Because nobody was
2: talking to you about
0: it. That was it. Well I did I did this amazing thing. I'm the one that signed my name. I relinquished my right. I chose this. So do I have the right to grieve
2: this? That conflict is tough to process. And it was almost as if it wasn't acceptable to grieve. Did you feel that? I think it was like, why would you grieve when you did this? It was
0: all, the focus was constantly recycled and brought back to what this provided for somebody else it was constantly it was almost like the diversion right like the perfect like storm to like take my focus off of what happened to try and show me something better so that I wouldn't get so caught up in what what my lived experience was and so it was always a deflect constantly to try and like turn my vision to to the bigger picture um, And so it wasn't that it was an okay degree, it was just, I think people were really scared about what that reality would actually look like. And I know from my lived experience for five years that the lived reality is the train going off the track and it's, it's ugly and it's painful. And there was a lot of people that suffered because of my unresolved stuff.
2: Yeah. And how did you heal? How did you find yourself healing? Well,
0: uh, because I don't do anything halfway <laughs> you know for me, it was um a lot of substance abuse and a lot of um casual relationships and um I almost killed someone in a drunk driving accident, and it wasn't until a uh failed suicide attempt that land me in landed me in a um mental health facility uh locked in for five days. And it wasn't until then that it was a horrible time. But for the first time since the hospital, I had a doctor, a psychiatrist that sat with me and said, what's going on? And I just said, and still, even then, even then, I'm like, I'm fine. Everything's fine. And he was like, honey, look around Look at where you are. You are not fine and you're not leaving until we figure this out. And he pursued me and we unpacked years of stuff and we discovered PTSD and trauma and all of these things that, and then we got to my son in the hospital and he's like, "You're grieving this lost. And do you know about private limb? Did you have, you know, and we unpacked on, I was like, oh my God, why didn't anyone tell me? And. You know, people hear that and they're like, well, what did you think was happening? And how did you not know that this was why you were acting the way you did? And I just, you don't understand the power of the influence of the way this is marketed to you and the way that it's packaged to you and the expectation of everyone around you. And why would I know anything different? I wasn't told anything different. And so I would have never made that. It wouldn't have been a natural connection for me to make because everything that I had been told it's completely opposite of what was actually happening. And so to unpack that and dismantle and rebuild and relearn, it's painful. Oh my gosh, it's painful, but it is a necessary tool. And then it was like the light turn on. And now I have a name to it. And now I understand what's happening to me. And now I can get the right professionals and now I can get the right meds, and now I can get da 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 that da da And it was like, wow, if I could have had this the right power and in education information right if I would have had this how much could I have prevented during those years and it was a turning point and at that moment it was like okay things are things are different
2: and I know what a processing you
0: yeah. know but I did I didn't know how to name it I didn't know how to sit in it I didn't know how to Recognize it. I didn't know how to validate it. I didn't know how to say it's okay that you're feeling this because this actually happened to you. Because anytime any emotion or that would have come up, it would have been no, 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 no. We're not talking about it. Just ignore it. And I'm sure your mother saw the same stuff. Or like even when she got pregnant again, parents, Like we not, we're not going to attach what happened over here to this because they're not. We're not going to. We're not going to connect those dots.
2: And so walk us through kind of the difference of, you know, here you you were a birth mother and now you're having children that you're going to raise.
0: Yeah. So, you know, when you talk about the messages that we're being told and and not making about us, you know, we we're we're propped up on this pedestal and whatever whatever we people want to present you, it's a long way to fall when reality hits and grief hits and you know, we come off of this pedestal that we aren't actually built up into this space. And so it's a long way to fall. Most women that have relinquished, most birth mothers would come to the table and say that they had a list of their greatest fears, you know, and things like that. I, I think we worry about not being able to have other kids, but parenting other kids, you know, isn't necessarily something that we think about. But I'll tell you what, when I all I knew about pregnancy was shame and guilt and pain and sadness and secrecy and so my husband and I were married and we were getting ready to have our first child and I couldn't even call my mom until I was terrified to call my mom and tell her that I was pregnant because the last time I was pregnant I told my mom and it was it broke my family into a million pieces and I didn't know how to prepare for motherhood Uh, my husband, I remember we were a couple of weeks, just a few, like two weeks away from delivery. And he was like grabbing my shoulders and like, we have to put this crib together because this baby is coming and you're not doing anything to prepare for this baby to come home. It was so mind blowing how disconnected I was from parenting prepping for motherhood versus what I knew about. I knew how to give birth. That's what I knew. And so when we we're in the hospital, you know, this I hate to, this is so painful because my daughter now, you know, she's 11 she's amazing. She's my best friend. She's the most incredible uh girl. She keeps me very hip and like cool with all the TikTok things and yeah. whatever. Thank goodness Glam, right? Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise we'd be dinosaurs. <laughs> totally. I was so terrified to connect with her because I didn't trust that she was going to stay. Okay. And so, you know, at the hospital, I gave birth and the nurses were like, you know, I didn't, my, my husband was there and he did a lot of the holding and the bottle feeding and things like that. And I didn't breastfeed. I didn't, cause I didn't breastfeed my son that, that place. Like it was just not something that I connected with. And every time the nurse left, Um, to take her out to the nursery. What I made my husband follow was, I was like, last time they took a baby, you know, she didn't come back. And so you're going to follow her around. (laughs) So, um, and then we brought her home from the hospital. And I remember we were in this little apartment in Tennessee and I set her car seat down. and I just stared at her and I was like, what the hell? (laughs) I didn't even know what to do with her. And I think new parents kind of go through that, but I wasn't a new parent but I'd never parented a child. I I had given birth and I knew the connect, but I I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to parent. And I separate that a lot, being a parent versus being a mother. Um, There's a very split distinct difference for me where most people would say that it's the same thing. And it's not, it doesn't connect the same for me. And I kept her at arm's length. It was very hard for me to, like she, you know, she slept in a separate bedroom. I didn't, not that she was neglected, but I I, I very much kept my heart guarded and kept her at arm's length emotionally. It took months uh, before I trusted that she was going to stay. And it was a really rough, very hard time. And, you know, I always hoped that when I got pregnant again, that it was going to be a boy. I always believed after placement that, I need a boy to like come full circle. Like I need not a replacement for the son that I placed, but I was like, it needs to be a boy. Like we need to come back full circle. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you what, it was such a blessing that he, that she was a girl because I struggled so much connecting in general. If It would have been a boy. I don't know that we would have ever overcome that. She needed to be a girl for me to let my guard down and trust that We could build a relationship so that by the time our son did come, we were kind of past some of that. But man, it was it was rough. It was rough for those first few months after. I I can only imagine because you're
2: reliving the trauma. Yeah.
0: Being in the hospital, all of it, it was it was really
2: scary. It was scary.
0: But there's not one person in all of that time that said, hey, when you get pregnant and go back to a hospital and deliver and bring this child home that you're going to be connecting dots and they wanted to treat it as a separate isolated thing. And it was not, it was not as a mother, as a parent, it was not separate.
2: Well, and if we talk about generational trauma too, and when you
0: look back through your life and seeing some of that disconnect and detachment for your mom, it was just one of those things that she never trusted the, the finality of your relationship. She was always worried that you were going to leave. I mean, it's hard to connect in a space that you don't trust.
2: I never thought it's really, yeah, you floored me. And I love that you're breaking down the barriers of this, the shame that has been put on birth mothers. Mm -hmm. Right? Would you call it that? Um, The secrecy and the shame and all of these things that we have put on them on top of the experience itself. It's so unnecessary.
0: And I think that exists from just such fear of the unknown. I think that there's so many of us that rarely interact with situations that they don't know or understand. We really, we're really creatures of habit and kind of gravitate towards things that are comfortable and things that we know and live in the kinds of neighborhoods that are comfortable and meet our needs. And when you mesh this completely opposite world and connect families with a child, it's scary. And so we, there's just so much shame and judgment and, and, and fear around the unknown. And I think the more educated we are, the more we can embrace and accept and move forward in, in
2: these open relationships. So then it becomes an open adoption. How, what was that journey like? Uh, Because he, by the way, uh, Derek sounds amazing. And so does, what? what's the right term to call the mom raising him? So there's the birth mom and then the,
0: Oh, his adopted mom. Adopted I mean, mom. Okay. Mom. He's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, her names line up, but he's yeah. She's mom to him, right? Um, she's his mom, and that's I mean that's who she is. That it all absolutely owned by her for sure.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so, how did it become an open adoption? Take us through that because wow, it's so cool.
0: Um, <laughs> so, you know, after so after about five years. And I think it took becoming a parent myself. Um, Again, already a mother, but now parenting a child, there was a lot of respect that was. I mean, I always loved her, respected her, but it was, it went to a different level when I was parenting my own daughter. Of the, um, the magnitude of the yes that she put on the
2: table,
0: Uh, because for me, you know, I. I placed in an open adoption era where I got to go profiles and hand pick a family and choose a family and all these kinds of things. And so for me, it was, you're, you're providing everything that I am not willing to or incapable of. And so I already had this respect for her, but I didn't understand the capacity, the magnitude of her yes to say, I will take this child on as a parent And, and now, you know, we're the fairies with two kids and we're going, Oh my God, parenting is the worst and everything is so complicated. So, and I'm just like, wow. And she willingly stepped in and said, we'll do that for you. Yep. And so I think that respect changed for me for sure when I became a parent myself. What after five years, it was that connection grew for me that that my son was a part of me. I wanted to know him. And after five years of them hearing a lot of no and silence for me. I had no idea what to expect, but I had an old email. And I really, literally remember sending something that was like, I don't know if you remember me, but I hit birth to your side. Like, "I'm um, what do you say? Like, it was really the worst email probably ever written. <laughs> but you wrote it. <laughs> yeah. But I sent it, and I really expected silence. And it was within 24 hours. Um that she wrote back and she said yes yes we've been waiting for you and at that moment it was this is more than titles and ownership over a child and it was we can be both and and he needs us both and it wasn't a competition between us and he can need us both and love us both, and that was okay. And in that moment, so then what happened from that moment on was she did an amazing job of being his parent being very protective. We spent a lot of years rebuilding trusts. Um, will you show up at a public place for our visit that we planned? Are you going to keep a consistent number? Uh, telephone number is, are you going to respond when we reach out? Um, is your husband going to be the guy that can be someone that we're that we feel safe with him in your home, and you have kids? And are, are you going to love Derek in an equal respect that you love your other kids? And can you handle all the questions and the dynamic? And, and so we spent a lot of years uh, testing each other and and rebuilding from scratch, and it was powerful. To rebuild, and then we were uh, Derek um, was nine years old, and I was in a Barnes and Noble in Arizona visiting my sister, and I got a text message. You know, we 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 walk into this believing that the open adoption relationship is between biological parent and adoptive parent, and the number one thing that I've learned is that's not open adoption is about the biological parent and the adoptee connection, and the adoptive parents are there as the gatekeeper to this relationship. Yeah. And so all of these years, his mom and I had been laying this foundation so that when Derek was old enough to have a voice, to have an opinion, to have a desire, that we together could come back and serve what we took from him. Because I made a choice believing that that was right for him and he didn't have a say. And so my goal is to give back to him what was lost. And that's me and his connection to me and whether it's complicated for me and emotional for me where you show up and whether she's jealous or it's hard for her she's gonna show up mm-hmm. and when he texted me I was in a Barnes and Noble and he was like hey this is Derek I miss you mm-hmm. I was like oh my god does your mom know you're texting me like I all of a sudden like had this moment like oh shit like this is not from his mom this is from him and that changed everything, changed everything for us. And, and from that moment on, it was about how do we serve him and his needs instead of what do we negotiate for ourselves? And it's been that way ever since.
2: Wow. That's powerful. There's so much strength in that. It's been brutal. <laughs> yeah. Like we are talking earlier about being a warrior. I mean, that's some really challenging work. We talk about this love and serving him and it's all about him, but
0: we've had to do so much personal work to be healthy enough to be in this space. And it's one of the reasons why our fight for post placement care matters so much because we believe that healthier birth mothers create healthier adoption relationships. Because if the women are not healthy, they don't get to show up for their kids that way. And when we relinquish, we believe we have no rights. We relinquish our rights. And so we don't, but what we're not told is that we still have an emotional responsibility to our kids. And we believe that once we relinquish our parental rights, that our job is done. No one tells us that years later, our kids are going to need us emotionally. And if we're not ready for that, we will cause more damage than the original placement itself if we're not prepared for that interaction.
2: Oh my gosh, I'm thinking of a friend that found her birth mother and sent her a letter and and she clearly was not emotionally ready and didn't respond yeah but that's what the half-sister did yeah yeah That and reunion that secondary rejection oh yeah. my gosh that oh, give me chills just the secondary rejection yeah so let's talk about your work because you're doing a big tough girl i love that <laughs> And your work with the Lifetime Healing Foundation. What are some ways that you help birth moms, yeah, to get them to that emotional place that you just referenced? Because I, we know this to be true. People don't think like this. I, they don't think this way about the birth mom. Yeah. So let's talk about that.
0: When I got out of the mental hospital and started writing and processing, uh, you know, grief lies to us. It makes us believe that our story is so unique and so different that no one will understand. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Green lies
2: to us. Oh boy, I'm writing that down. That is amazing.
0: And so it keeps us isolated
2: Mm -hmm.
0: because we believe that no one will be able to get it.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And, you know, when you believe that you're the only birth mother in the world that ever has really wished the rights to her child, you, you stay isolated. And now I can't even spit without hitting somebody that has a tie to adoption. Right. And so. For us, you know, we started doing support. We when for when Facebook groups first launched, the private Facebook groups, we were one of the very first in the nation to come in and utilize a Facebook group for birth mom community. And we started building this relationship with women online in these in these private Facebook groups. And we did a really good job, but what we learned is that. Um, social media still keeps you isolated. When you're up at three a.m. and 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 dumping your trauma in a Facebook group and putting your phone down, you're still alone in your pajamas in your bed, and it's this false sense of support. And I think social media is an amazing tool for community, that should not be used for therapy. And what happened is, for five years, we had twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, three hundred sixty five days a year of birth moms vomiting trauma online Mm. and we were not qualified to process or handle that much trauma on top of reliving our own trauma every time and I spent a lot of years oh my gosh so many years on the on the bathroom floor on suicide watch and on on conference calls with hotlines and we 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 believed that we were bringing women together and doing good. And we realized that we had no business running that kind of managing that kind of pain. And this was, had gone beyond community. It had gone into trauma and therapy needs. And we had suicides during that time. And it's pretty painful to wake up in the morning, you know, and I know this is so, so real and raw for people to hear, but you know, you wake up and you have unread messages of women that are reaching out that need support. And, I happened to go to sleep that night, you know? And then you wake up and, and this woman is taking her life or overdose and things like that. And it is not okay. And so we took a year off and I was pissed <laughs> for about a year of, of just, where in the hell are the professionals? Why are these licensed professionals not sitting with us? You know what's happening to us. You know, you're taking our children. You, you, you sit with us in destruction. Where are you in the rebuilds? You have an ethical responsibility to be with us in the rebuild. And if you're going to claim best practice, where the hell are you? And when we say adaption is for life, I think we greatly underestimate what that actually looks like. And when we say for life, it is for a lifetime. And the women need licensed professionals mental health professionals, healthcare professionals that can stand with them for the long haul. And so after that experience, we came to the table, me and a team of birth moms, and we wrote the nation's first curriculum and training and went to the professionals that said, you need to know why this matters and why you need to show up. And we'll do all the work. We'll write the curriculum. We'll give you the free materials so that women, no matter how long ago they placed or who they placed with. They could come to a support group that was free so that it became a standard in care and not a luxury based on our medical insurance. And we want to change the nation in in allowing women to have access to grief and trauma support that doesn't force them into
2: isolation online.
0: And it's a lot of work.
2: (laughs) It is. but it is
0: but that's our that's our mission from coast to coast every 30 miles you should be able to access free support that's our goal
2: that's beautiful there's a huge opportunity with these moms from the baby scubert that are being identified <laughs> by these yeah. genealogy sites that's a yeah. huge that's a and they're, ter-
0: and they're terrified about it and but the way that society treated them and I. I've, I've studied so much of that history and I think about your mom, you know, I was thinking about your mom today, actually, I was reading through the girls who went away and a little bit of uh, wake up little Susie and reading through a couple of books. And, you know, I had, you know, even in our commonality of relinquishment, I had the privilege of choosing a family and being proactive in my choice. And they didn't have a choice. They didn't have a choice. And society, it was their way of, redeeming their societal claim over these women because they were trash unless they did this. And I don't know that we've come that far, but I, it's just packaged differently. Uh, but I I just, I, the women that placed in secret and shame, now that those stories are coming out, now that they ever forgot, but I don't know that they're prepared. They haven't had the kind of support to be able to sit in this space. Everyone wants them. All these adoptees are finally like, oh my God, we finally get to see you. And the moms are not ready for that. They haven't been taught that. They haven't been prepared for that. And the adoptees again, you know, we get into that rejection twice. But it's like the moms are, they're having to reject twice. Like they just emotionally, I don't know, it's just, it's complicated.
2: So complicated.
0: Um, but the birth moms are not, you know, and when you talk about foster care, the state coming in and taking your child away is very different than stepping in the space where you're making a choice to place your child for adoption. And there wasn't lack of love or neglect or hatred for my child. It was just no one stood up and filled the gap in resource and circumstance. So adoption was an option. And um, I think that, I think that matters to look at and unpack, and I don't think people believe that we are mothers who care that much. And 15 years later, I care a lot. I care a lot about my son. You sure do. And he's an amazing kid. And my and my kids love. I mean, he's he's their older brother, and they love him. And, and it's cool. It's cool to watch. When I get to watch all three of my babies together, oh, it's um. It's just a glimpse of just complete motherhood for me. It's pretty awesome, Really special, yeah. It's really interesting. Right when we were launching um, our national curriculum, I was in Vegas. I was speaking at a women's event, and it wasn't adoption specific, but I always tie it in and bring it into any speaking event. Uh, you know, when you have a nation that's experiencing one in eight women or experiencing infertility, you're going to have an option in the audience. So it's always something that I can bring to the table. But I remember I, I spoke and there was there was about 500 women in this little conference room in in Las Vegas. And when I got done, um, you know, I had talked to a bunch of people and taken pictures and my husband and I were there. And this woman came up to me and she was maybe late 70s, early 80s. And she kind of walked up to me and kind of pulled me aside. And this was right at the beginning of this, this pursuit to take a national curriculum out for women to, to be more accessible. And she pulled me aside and she just kind of leaned in and kind of whispered and she was just like, I just want you to know that your story's like mine. And I didn't wanna pass without someone knowing. And she turned and walked away from me, and I lost my shit. I was like, "Oh my god, do not leave! Like, where? What can I do for you? Can I help you track down your child?" Like, this was a birth mom that had spent her entire adult life burdened with this secret, and finally had a birth mom that was open and speaking about it. And her her acknowledgement to me was enough for her to say, "Someone knows." Mm. I didn't get her name. I don't know who she is. And I think about that woman. All the time. And, you know, it's been really surprising. Our support groups, I thought, were going to be for younger moms. And, you know, our demographic is women that are in their 30s, 40s, you know, 25 to 15 years post-placement, closed adoption into some sort of open adaptions. Um, more than one child um, coming out of the quote-unquote adoption closet for the first time in their 30s or 40s. And it's just like, this, this is for the women that have been unseen and unheard for decades. And it's been so interesting to watch these women just kind of come out of the woodwork that are like, I'm married and have this family and have this whole life but I also have this piece that has never been addressed and now we're here and and it's not too late. It's not too late to come to the table, but these women are going to go to an agency that they went to 30 years ago. They're going to look for a community group to be able to sit in unity with women and it's been just, it's been the most incredible thing I've ever witnessed.
2: You're incredible, Ashley.
0: Oh. <laughs> well, the women are incredible.
2: Yeah, but you're, giving them voice and you're validating their space and their position and that's all we want in life right to be validated you know I
0: know I just I know for me keeping it silent all the things that I thought would protect me if I ignored it were literally the things that were going to kill me and I got to a point where I just didn't have a choice anymore I had to talk about it. I had to acknowledge it I had to process it because everything else that I had tried to do to ignore it to live the expectation of what other people had put on me about my experience were going to kill me and I knew what my lived experience was and I had to own it and it wasn't until I was able to own it and take responsibility for it and acknowledge all the dark dirty pieces of it you know you bring light to it and we can talk about it and we could stop fearing it and we could put a name to it and it mattered a lot and i know women need need a place that they can come and put light to it and that's what we hope to accomplish nationally
2: yeah bravo thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing your story and all the work yeah. you do. well anyone that's willing to give me a voice and a space to be
0: brave enough to sit with a birth mom I just I honor and respect so much and I I'm so excited to be able to speak to an audience that's new for us and hopefully teach them something new oh for sure about who we are and and what this has been really like for us because it's not what people assume and think and I want them to know us and we're not we're not the the scary bad guy this word we're women that have had to make Impossible possible choices in really difficult circumstances deserve, deserve the support to move through it.
2: You do. Yeah. Oh, Ashley, thank you so much. Thank
0: you.
1: In listening to Ashley, you realize the trauma associated with being a birth mom has often been a secret, something for a woman to live through to absorb all on their own. Ashley wants to change that, and thank goodness she does. I am so grateful to Ashley for her honesty, her bravery, her work, and for helping all of us see birth mother's pain more clearly. These women don't need to be judged. They need to be loved. Warrior on, Ashley. If you are a birth mother or someone who has experienced trauma through adoption, trafficking, sexual abuse, or any other form of exploitation, please visit lifetimehealingfoundation.org. They are waiting for your call. Until next time, stay curious and be well.